That's terrifying. Why? Well, for the reason I started off the conversation, which is that, which is that, um, I think that many religious people hope that they can find some way of fitting into general obligations without having to do the work to work out what it is that mm. I, God actually requires from me. He, what he's saying is he's, 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 he's being pretty brutal. He's standing over your shoulder and saying, yeah, when you're making those choices about what you deal with and what you don't deal with in life, and you think, well, I, I can't really be bothered to deal with that, that's the thing you should be dealing with mm. because that's the, cause that's the bit where the problem resides. I, I've had this as a congregational rabbi. I've had this many times. People, people say, well, I come to Shon Yom Kippur, and I sort of look at my life, and I think, well, you know, it's all right. It's basically all right. It's like you know, there's, it's not. It's not. I, I can't really. I can't really think of the thing that I should be thinking of. It's not like there's some like really. Like, yeah, and this is like you know, that's just completely the wrong way of thinking about what it means to lead a life of service. Hmm. That's just completely a dis. Like this is a disorienting. Yeah. This is a disorienting text yeah. because it's saying, you know, that's the ah, uh, it's like you know, you'll know you're oriented when you're not feeling like that. I thought he was going to say something nice then. All of a sudden he said something nasty. Like, you know, like what you need to work on in the world is, is actually connected to what's worst about you, not what's best about you. I mean, that's the last thing you want to hear is that as I move on to my, you know, sixth wife partner, the last thing I want to hear is it's all about me. That was my chavruta and nemesis, Rabbi Joel Levy. I'm Leon Wiener-Dow, creator and host of Padrash. In this episode, we continue this season's exploration of tshuva, repentance. Having explored in episode two the dialectic of the glance inward that aims to enable the outward turn to the world, it's now time to look at the critical moment affectionately dubbed fessing up, taking ownership of what we've done wrong. Joel and I were discussing a text called the Netivot Shalom, about which you'll hear more later. The Netivot Shalom offers an interesting but taxing lens through which to behold our flubs. Don't think of them as an impediment, something to get rid of, he admonishes. Think of them as the work you've come to do in this world. That's a hard notion to get your head around, especially when it comes time to apologize for something we've done. Welcome to Episode 3, Nailing the Apology. We have a lot of Torah to learn. Y'all stay with us. Our text for the day is from the inimitable This American Life, a segment from an episode called Get a Spine. In it, reporter Nancy Updike brings yet another Me Too story, but this one is different. Dan Harmon was the co-creator and showrunner of an NBC program called Community, and in 2010, Megan Gantz joined as a new and upcoming writer, on whom Dan developed a crush. Falling for someone, even if you're living with your girlfriend as Dan was, may be hard to avoid, but Dan's offenses were numerous and inimical, from inappropriate comments to half-baked, insincere apologies for those comments to praising Megan and promoting her until the point when she rejected Dan's overtures, at which time he promptly turned and became nasty and spiteful. Dan's full-blown apology, which Megan Gantz called a masterclass in how to apologize, he issued in 2018 in the not-so-intimate setting of his podcast, Harmontown. And there were a string of apologies, some on Twitter, others on previous episodes of his podcast, that gnawed away at things prior to that. Nancy Updike does a beautiful job weaving together Harmon's apology with an interview with Gantz, which provides the backstory leading up to the apology. And Updike does something rather exceptional. She plays the majority of his seven-and-a-half-minute apology. As I was assembling the snippets of the podcast I'll share, and here I'll insert my standard word of encouragement to go listen to the full version of it, I realized that without intending to do so, I had shifted things, and arguably, right at a terrible imbalance, I silenced Dan. So, I actually won't play any of Dan's voice as he apologizes. Let's start, instead, by hearing Gantz's reaction to his full apology. I started listening to it, expecting to be angry. Um, so that was also kind of a roller coaster of going from angry to feeling this immense relief. 
at the end of it. And I listened to it, I think, again, uh, right away, sitting in my car in the parking lot of my work. When she heard Dan's apology, they hadn't talked face-to-face in six years. It it was uh, cathartic in a way that I could have never imagined. Uh, it was like receiving the antidote to a poison I'd been like self-inflicting. After one flaccid attempt at apology on Twitter, what Updike called more of an admission than an apology, Dan upped the Twitter ante. The pace really started picking up on Twitter at the end of 2017, in the wake of Harvey Weinstein, Larry Nasser, Louis C.K., on and on. Dan tweeted, quote, This was truly the year of the myself included. We don't have to make 2018 the year of the mensch, but I hope it can be the year of the not as much of an ass. Hashtag realistic goals. Megan read that one, and what drove her to respond was the reactions she saw. People praising him for admitting to vague bad behavior in the past and declaring he was trying to be better. She wrote back on Twitter. I responded to him by saying, care to be more specific, redemption follows allocution. Allocution, as all good Catholics and Law & Order fans know, which means that Megan Gantz knew how to use it, but I had no idea what it meant, is a full verbal admission of wrongdoing. Dan's next tweet seemed to indicate that even if he didn't know the dictionary definition of allocution, he understood from context that he had to be more specific. I will talk about it more in any way that you think is just. I am deeply sorry. End quote. That, I am deeply sorry, was the first time Megan felt like he was speaking directly to her about how he'd behaved with her. She says she might have left it there with the deeply sorry. Except Dan sent out another tweet saying, quote, I'm filled with regret and a lot of foggy memories about abusing my position, treating you like garbage. I would feel a lot of relief if you told me there was a way to fix it. I'll let you call the shots. Till then, at least I know I was an awful boss and a selfish baby. But there's something else worth noting in that tweet. Namely, that he realizes that he has to let Megan Gantz call the shots. And yet the tweet though at some level passing the power on to Gantz, at the same time exposes the huge disparity in power between them. I wish my memories were foggier. I wish there was a way to fix it. It took me years to believe in my talents again, to trust a boss when he complimented me and not cringe when he asked for my number. I was afraid to be enthusiastic, knowing it might be turned against me later. You want relief? So do I. Figure out how to give me that relief and I'll return the favor. I guess what I was reading into that tweet was I was like, I mean, you're already thinking of you. <laughs> you're already thinking of how you can move on from this yeah. instead of just sitting with the awful knowledge that I've been sitting with this for six years. But the power disparity played itself out in one more inimical fashion. Dan's apologies, the half-baked ones that were strewn along the way, were themselves a mechanism of pretense one that allowed him to bolster his position of privilege. Megan didn't want to rehash specific incidents with Dan on the radio, but she did talk about the way apologizing was a key part of the dynamic. Like, for instance, he, he would do something, say something to me that I wouldn't take as inappropriate, and then he would apologize for it, for some little thing that he had said. Mm-hmm. And I would say, oh, don't worry about it, like, it's I didn't I wasn't offended. And then the thing the next thing that would happen would be slightly more um, inappropriate. But I had forgiven him for one thing. And I thought, oh, every time that he apologized, I thought, well, look, this guy is he he knows like he's he's real switched on. He, he knows uh, where the line is, um, not realizing that all of those instances were slowly moving the line. So now we have some work to do to figure out not only how to make an apology work, but how to ensure that it's not used as a false indication of righteousness or as a mechanism for preserving the imbalances of power that caused the pain in the first place. I want to welcome Rabbi Felicia Soule, longtime friend of mine and 
rabbi at BJ, Bnei Jeshurun, in New York City since 2001. The first woman to serve as a rabbi of that community in the congregation's almost 200-year history. Rabbi Soul was born in Connecticut and uh, has a son and daughter and lives uh, on New York's Upper West Side. She was the Marshall Meyer Rabbinic Fellow at BJ and stayed on because they saw what a treasure they had in her. And she's been at BJ, I think, right ever since. It's a pleasure to welcome you, Felicia, to Padrash. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Glad to be here. I want to hear, when you listen to the podcast, what were your impressions? What were your thoughts? What were your feelings? Where did it meet you? Well, I think the episode is a really powerful one because it captures both his own process and what his own process did to her process. And so while we think of an apology as like a one moment experience where someone says something and someone experiences something, what I think was powerful about the podcast was kind of the road that we got taken down in terms of Dan's own kind of like, oh, you know, first he had one realization and then another. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we only in retrospect got to hear kind of the telling of how it all happened, which was kind of interesting in retrospect to hear that. Mm -hmm. But I also thought was really powerful Megan's own process of receiving the apology mm-hmm. and in doing so, what it did to her soul. You know, that mm-hmm. it wasn't mostly about the two of them, the apology. In some way, the apology for each of them was less about the two of them together and really more about each of them and their own stories, mm-hmm. which is not often the way we think about of an apology. In that sense, each of them is looking for something very, very different in the apology. It's not for their relationship to be sustained or to evolve in some way. If you start with Megan, what do you think, what what was your understanding about what Megan's looking for in the apology? First of all, she didn't expect the apology, right? Like Mm. in many ways, but what happened, I think, with the apology was this very profound release and recognition of kind of her own process of questioning about who she was. What it seemed like through the apology is that one, she was validated in a way that she had never been. And two, that she could finally kind of take stock of who she really was, um, the truth of who she was. The point that you raise reminds me of something that she says there, that she's in this very, very odd and painful situation where the person who can release her from her pain is the same person who caused the pain. In a certain sense, a kind of irony that Dan Harmon, even at that moment, maintains this privileged status. Correct. I mean, so, the other thing I would say about it is that you know, she says that there were many apologies that led up to that final apology. Right, right. So in in a certain sense, the ap- notion of apology became a false truth. I, I don't know even how to say mm, it, right? Like mm. the idea that one could apologize, which she says, basically, she took at face value in the moment, but they kept on being one on top of the other. So in the end, the final apology of which she felt this profound release was actually him narrating what happened in a way that actually told the truth that she had experienced, which Mm -hmm. all the small apologies or mistakes that he had made up until then could not have done because in the moment of them, she thought he was being true. But the truth was he didn't even know what was going on. It seems to me that the critical moment in that process, uh, and this will maybe help us transition to Dan, is the moment in which after he's tried and tried and she's held her ground and basically, I think, had a sense of integrity and said, no, you haven't apologized in a way that meets me and that meets my needs and that's compelling and that feels genuine and authentic and complete to me. The critical moment is where he basically kind of says to her, I think it's all, this is all happening on Twitter. Um, okay, so tell me what I need to do. Uh, and he kind of gives her uh, that 
I, I mean, it, it seems silly to call it power. I mean, maybe, you know, right or acknowledges, maybe he doesn't give it to her. Maybe she had it the whole time and he's just acknowledging out loud, you know, you are the one who calls the shots. You are the one in order for my apology to work. It's not what I think works. It's what you think works. So please take the lead and tell me what is it? What do you think is allowing that process to continue on for him or causing it to continue on for him? Clearly, I don't know his story extremely well, but at least what we learn about him is he, it sounds like he hit rock bottom. He had a drinking problem, then he went to therapy, or I don't know whether he was in therapy before, but he was clearly in some kind of therapeutic process that the impact of what he had done started to have some resonance for him as he continued to take the layers off, whether that was with guidance or not, he saw how profoundly corrupt the scenario was given his power. He was willing to stick with it. He was persistent. And clearly she pushed him too in that dialogue, right? He he wasn't allowed to kind of rest on his laurels of accomplishment of awareness. She kept on pushing and he was willing to go, which is not a given. You know, lots of times when we um, feel good about ourselves for the awareness, as you talk about, we're not in touch enough with what the person we've hurt needs. And so, um, and so even if the person, even if that person is saying, Hey, you know, this is missing for me or that's missing for me. um, You know, we're feeling sufficiently good about ourselves because we got to this awareness that we've kind of tuned out um, the other person and what they're saying, hey, you know, this is missing for me. And and you're right in that sense, this whole story is that much more moving because they really aren't significant others for each other at this point. At the time when all this takes place, they could have each moved on and Dan could have do- gone through his reckoning process alone uh, and he chose uh, and he chose not to. I would Ask, just say one yeah, thing, Leon. Yeah, please, please. They're not significant others, but they are significant, mm. right? Like in that way, they're not in relationship, but the significance of oh, what good. happened there was really profound. If you mm. think about six years later, that they're right. still carrying such right. profundity right. around the nature right. of the relationship. That's actually, I'm, I'm glad you stopped me on that. Maybe introduce the text that you brought and tell me why it is that you thought of this text. This text is by the Slonimer Rebbe of Jerusalem in the 20th century. He died, I believe, in 1991. I love his teachings partially because I think they're very psychologically intuitive (laughs) and they're translatable, I think, into life and really Mm -hmm. meaningful ways. The episode obviously screams tshuva. Um, Mm -hmm. It screams repentance or return. And so I was thinking about texts that speak about tshuva specifically, but this particular text, which has been very formative for me, I've been learning him for a long time, which essentially asks the question, what does God ask of you? You know, essentially asks, like, what is your particular identity? What is your particular role? And what is your particular um responsibility in the universe. In the sense of the apology, that's what was really struck me that, you know, in some way they were so independent of one another and they were really wrestling with who they were and less about repairing a particular relationship that would sustain itself over time, but really about coming to terms with who they uniquely are in the world, and also what gets in the way of that. We often, I think, think about tshuva as a forward-moving process, but it, in and of itself, the word means to return, which is to some kind of essence which is not marred or blemished. Um, and so this particular text feels to me a very core teaching about asking the question about identity and purpose. And often I think when we go off track is when we make mistakes. My reading was that it's almost as if he's saying that part of our mission in our lives is to do a particular form of tshuva that, that, is, that, that that's our work to do. Um, that we came in this world with certain gifts and we came in this world with certain less than positive inclinations 
and they're going to play themselves out in some way. And therefore, part of our job in this world and in our lives is to, once they've played themselves out, do that process of fixing. And so that process of fixing becomes actually a part of why we're here uh, in this world. Is that how you understand understood what he's saying as well? Or would you, yes, would you offer a different take? No, I think there's an element of that. I would say the first, at least for me, and he speaks about this in other places, is, you know, we're continually asked every hour, every day, mm-hmm. every year, who are you? You know, what does God ask of you? So the sense is that each moment we're being called and asked a question about who do you want to be, which mm-hmm. in and of itself is an orientation to the universe rather than what do I need or or I'm going to do what I want. And that orientation as a person who's deeply religious, maybe not in traditional religious terms, feels like an orientation in the universe that makes us accountable um, to the moment, which Mm. is in some way a pre-chuva ask, right? Mm -hmm. It's like we are continually orienting to what's my job here right now. And I think he is saying everyone has their own tikkun to do. Everyone has their own repair work to do, some of which I think we know from the start of our lives or we're challenged with from the beginning. And some of those things evolve at the very particular hour or particular Mm. day or particular year. Um, And so both it's who we were built as and also who we become over time and what wrestling we need to do with that particular tikkun. One possibility, given what you just said, is that there's this particular moment in Dan Harmon's life where, as you said, he's hit rock bottom. The kind of one thing after another has gone wrong. And because he hits rock bottom, he gets to a kind of low enough place that he can now do this work of tshuva. That would be one way of understanding it. The other, which is a kind of assuming a different thread pursuing a different thread from what you just said, is that he brought from the beginning of his life, you know, he brought certain characteristics into his workplace and into his, and and into his, you know, being and into the way he is with other human beings. And, um, and so a different way to say it would be that, that it wasn't in a certain sense, it wasn't the particular characteristics of this moment. It was just kind of all of his past leading up to this moment. I guess I would, um, to connect those two ideas, I would say Mm -hmm. perhaps that if he had been asking the question earlier, maybe he wouldn't have hit rock bottom. Mm. In a sense, I think part of, at least my mind, a religious orientation is knowing who we are in a given place. Um, He's a white man in a powerful position, supervising folks. And when one holds different positions in the, you know, at a particular hour or particular mm-hmm. day or particular mm-hmm. year, then one has to think what my role is, what's my purpose. If he had any sense of awareness of even being asking a question when I sit in this position or when I have these feelings or what would it mean to put those out in the world or what does it mean to even be responsible in some sense for anyone's livelihood? Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, like, I mean, right. really these baseline right. questions that are have nothing to do with being attracted right. to Megan Gans. They really Good. are about... What's my purpose in this moment? So I think there's that pre-ask that I feel like the Sloanermer's orientation to us is mm-hmm. know before whom you stand and what you're standing for. Right. And and then I think as time went on, when he gave these like little apologies, it sounds like from the podcast that he was self-satisfied with his reckoning. But if one is accumulating apologies and is not getting anywhere, then one might reflect more deeply. I said earlier, um, I mentioned the fact that there's something kind of ironic that what allows him to issue his successful apology is that he reaches a breaking point when he basically hands the reins over to Megan Gantz and says, you decide, you tell me. And what I would say about that um, is that that's a moment where he cedes power. 
in other words, I, I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting that it, that it might be a way to connect to your narrative of what he could have been seeing all along is that there's a big tikkun, there's a big area for him to work on in, in terms of his relationship to power. And ultimately what allows him to undergo this transformation is that he cedes that power. That's where I feel like this Slonimer lives, right? What is he being called to do mm. in that moment? Right. And it's like he has this like, aha, oh, it's actually not about what I need to do. Right, that's like, right. I needed to be guided and I need to recognize that I am not the center, right? right. Like that um, my own process is about my own process, but really if I want to impact Megan, I might actually have to consider what she needs, right? <laughs> I might actually yeah. have to listen. Right, right, right. I mean, it sounds so <laughs> silly from the outside. Of course, most of us are, you know, in each of our lives, uh, you know, we're wrapped up in many versions of the same thing. You mentioned the kind of crumbs along the way that, that were leading, you know, that were setting, establishing a trail, and he might have noticed before he got to the dangerous spot um, if he had been paying attention. So when I was listening, I was taken aback by what was, even in his recounting now, an almost incidental uh, starting point, which was that at the time that he's that he's starting to flirt with Megan and and fall, I you know become infatuated with her. I don't know what to say about it, but he he has a girlfriend that he's living with at the time, and he's basically living a lie when he's living in such a way that. The person who he's living with, right? The, the the place of intimacy is a place of is a place of fraud, is a place of untruth, is a place of betrayal. Uh, and so, in that sense, you know, I would almost say it this way. I hope it's not too much of an overstatement, but of course, he's going to end up where he ends up. Right, and also, I mean, he says very clearly that his girlfriend asked him explicitly. Right, right, um, and so when essentially a mirror is put up to him, you know, she knows better than he does, right. whether he's willing to admit it. And so there's another moment where he's actually being asked because she feels, right, because she knows and he can't yet acknowledge um, truthfully the answer to that question. Like that feeling of what that girlfriend must know um, and also sometimes what others know that we can't acknowledge ourselves. Right. And the Sloan Revy talks about behirut, clarity, kind of internal clarity that we have to have for ourselves. And I think he's talking about clarity that we have to have for why we're in this world and also clarity that goes along with that for what it is that we need to be fixing. Um, presumably in ourselves. So what I want to ask either in general or more specifically, as you think it kind of plays itself out in in the podcast is number one, what does it mean to have that clarity? And number two, what are the impediments to that clarity? And number three, how can we get there? In other words, given that there are impediments, how can we cast them aside or overcome them? First about clarity, like Right, the notion of what that word is is a, a certain amount of transparency. What's bahir is what's clear, or mm. you know, like it's un uh, doesn't have there are no veils. In my sense, obviously, th those veils are are impediments in relationship. And the Sloanomer, in many ways, is talking about the relationship with God. But I think that applies to any relationship in many ways, which mm -hmm. is if one wants to be something that's clear, one has to be honest. And the processes that we get to that honesty, are, I think, are, are multifold, you know, in our world, right? We're very blessed to live in a society that actually cares about psychological um, support. And so therapy is one way to that. I think, you know, for me, prayer is also a, a pathway to mm -hmm. that. Also, you know, if he had actually been willing to engage with his girlfriend on that right. question. Right. That's what right? I was thinking. Yeah. You know, she's, then, off she's offering him clarity. Exactly. Yeah. She, you know, we often get asked questions, and this is part of what I love about this loner is like, 
we're accountable to the question. And mm. often people ask us questions and we want to run away. So relationships that make us, whether it's that person from high school who kind of put forth something to you that really right. sticks. Um, right. And I, I think when we feel like things stick or when we feel in some way hurt by accusations, often there's something there. We just don't want to actually be the way that other people are experiencing us and seeing us sometimes. Yeah, and I think it's also, you know, this is where I think the Sloanomer it's very powerful too that we hide from who we are a lot. We wish we didn't have certain challenges and sometimes mm. we don't want to share our gifts because we would rather they be different. Like there's mm. a certain amount of protection, I think. Protection and impediment go hand in hand, right? In order to protect, to not be hurt, to not feel vulnerable, um, we put up screens and those screens, you know, obviously have a purpose, but they also create veils. And in, in my best version of clarity is that we live with the fullness of who we really are being willing to take the risk actually to feel vulnerable. And I mean, that's where love comes in the grandest mm -hmm. form, right? The hope is, and whether that's love for another person or love for God is that we don't feel like we need to hide. You could say also that, I mean, he doesn't say this directly in this text. I think other texts say it more directly that we make mistakes when we're not living from our clear place in many ways, not being at the essence of who we are and pretending or wishing right. we were someone else or wishing we had that. Like a lot of coveting is really mm. about not feeling like we can live with what is of who we are. I mean, some of that is stuff, but I think that there is an essence of that that's true that when we can't be authentically who we were put on this earth to be, whether you think that's God-driven or whatever, um, then we end up tripping up more. He says in the text, um, that, that, that that which is the hardest for you is your, you know, your unique task or your special purpose. Dan Harmon and Megan Gantz is that, is that there's that, again, I, I keep going back to that moment uh, where the power structure reverses. And it's that exact thing, right? As you said, he's, he's in the position of power. He's, he's privileged. He's the one in charge of the team and of the show. And the moment, which is his redemptive moment, and I think for many of us as listeners, um, our redemptive moment is that moment when he cedes the power. And the flip side, which is the most interesting and almost touching part of the story, is that on her end, Megan Gantz is, is going through the same thing, where that moment, right, as we talked about earlier, that person who was the one who wielded power over her and who used it in an abusive uh, and horrible way, um, in a kind of ironic and painful way, still holds that power over her uh, um, with all of the work that she's done, you know? So I would say almost kind of the flip side is that is that she's also going through a parallel journey. And maybe that gets back to what you said, that the slow number talks about kind of there being certain moments in our lives which are which are ripe with possibility. Yeah, right. He asks a different question in that moment. Yeah ask, what does she need? And right. she, you know, what's interesting also about that is she said several times what she needed and she wasn't heard. Right. And she said, I need you to stop because I need to know that right. I'm good. Like know? she had the clarity. She, she had did. the clarity and, and she reflected it to him and he was not able to hear it back then. Right. Or he heard it, but he didn't care because he had his own <laughs> right. needs. Right? right. Finally, her needs are considered and they are met. And I think that's part of the redemption because only he could give her that um, right. um, to kind of affirm what she felt that it was true. It's funny because obviously this um, podcast was not put out for the Jewish holidays, but particularly in a time of COVID as a rabbi, I and my, my colleague, Rolly Mantelan, have been thinking a lot about what it means to go through a process of tshuva when you don't get to sit in shul in a bubble, essentially, over the course of 10 days, forget the month leading up, and what kind of process 
can we scaffold for our community to think about asking these kinds of hard questions? Mm -hmm. Like the fear of our worth being nothing Mm. is a really huge catalyzer. Also, given the world that we're living in and kind of the Dan Megan story, power is playing in really profound ways in our world. Um, You know, the Me Too movement, racism, you could say annexation is is a part of that conversation as well. There's a lot of exposure right now to kind of those imbalances of power Mm -hmm. in very large scale, but they also play out very interpersonally too. I feel like in the reckoning with all our blemishes and our not answering the question about who are you called to be, well, there's such profound possibility that emerges. But if we don't ask the question or if we don't live in spaces therapeutic, religious relationships, our texts that are kind of putting these questions before us, if we ignore it, just like Dan ignored his girlfriend, then Mm -hmm. we're bound to keep telling the same story. So Rabbi Felicia Solo, thank you for being with us on Tajash. It was a pleasure having you. Padrash is a project of Kolot, a fantastic organization in Israel where I'm privileged to direct the Beit Midrash. Before we continue on to Scott Siff, guest of our Hypertech segment, we'll break briefly in order to meet Adva Lloyd, until recently the head of the Ramat Negev region in Israel South and a Kolot alumna. We chatted so that I could learn about her and how learning at Kolot has impacted her. Adva, please tell us about yourself. I was born and raised in Kibbutz Balachim and left to the Negev at the age of uh, 35. Most of my professional life was done in the Negev. Fortunately enough, of course, with hard work, I was a bright hand of uh, the mayor of Ramat Negev for many years, who uh, unfortunately passed away two, two years ago, but I was accompanying him with settling the Negev because we knew that Israel is too small to leave the Negev outside of being populated and being settled. It's not enough to just live in Beersheba or Tel Aviv or Jerusalem. The Negev is 22% of of Israel. And most of it is Negev, is is Mm. desert, which is fantastic, it's beautiful, and, and it should be left for the next generations. But in order to be able to maintain life, we need more people there. Although I have a great sense of um, history values and uh, heritage values, but none of the um, texts was written or were written by um, a lot of um, great people that I knew about, but I never really went deep into their their writing. I mean, opening my uh, point of view to different opinions, different people, different um, culture, I remember uh, that at the end of the Shabbat that we did in Ashkelon, uh, there was one person who was religious, and I knew him before. I thought I knew him. I thought what he, I knew his uh, his tendency and how he feels about things. But I was so amazed by the um, profound experience that he felt about women in the, the Knesset and women uh, touching the uh, Torah. And I didn't understand until that moment how some of the um, religious values are so strong with them. And it made me think that I shouldn't be so judgmental. I'd be more open and and listen, and listen, listen, not always say what I think. Listening was one of the um, main present, I think, that I received from Kolot. This was something very strong with me, was a gift for me. And uh, I feel responsible after going through this experience to pass it on. Adva thank you very, very much for being with us. You're welcome and keep doing it. It's great. Like every Padrash episode, learning at Kolot pulses between the text as discussed in the Beit Midrash and the broken reality that surrounds us beckoning us to hear voices of wisdom that can point the way to a better world. To learn more about Kolot, 
visit www.kolot.info. And now, back to our episode. Scott Ziff of Quadrant Strategies, my former neighbor many, many years ago in Houston, Texas. I want to welcome you to Podrash. I'm delighted that you were able to join us. Maybe you can tell the listeners uh, a little bit about yourself. I, I work for this for a company that focuses on uh, working with other companies on their communication strategy, public affairs. It's basically where there's an intersection between business and public discussion. And so that can involve crisis communications. It can involve companies that have missteps and need to get back on track. Um, and it can just involve how they tell their story as a company as opposed to trying to sell products. What I was hoping we could get at in the course of our conversation is what is the professional and personal wisdom that you bring to the equation? When you take on a client and they say, we need help doing some kind of damage control over some kind of misstep that we've had or perceived misstep uh, that we've had, is it important for you that they has done a serious accounting and genuinely believes that they've misstepped? Or are you just accepting as a given the fact that there's a perception out there that they misstepped and you don't really care whether the people who are quote unquote issuing the apology think that they have something to apologize for? As an initial matter, there are companies that have come to us that we're just not comfortable working with. And so we have certainly, and I would even say not infrequently, said to a company, we're just not comfortable working with you. And I'm not going to name names, but that happens. So there wait, is wait, so let, let me stop you. For, let me stop you for a second. You don't have to name yeah. names, but please share because that's that's interesting. Because the cynic in me would say the bottom line is they're willing to pay, and you're saying no. There are certain criteria which make me or us uncomfortable, and so therefore, even if they are willing to pay, we're not willing to help them out. So share with me without going obviously into any kind of violating any kind of trust or detail, but share with me the kind of things or the kind of considerations that would lead you to that conclusion. Well, there's usually two categories of companies that we have turned away in the past. The first one is their underlying business is one we just don't agree with. So you can imagine there's certain kind of sin businesses, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. sort of to use an old-fashioned term, I guess. Mm -hmm. That would be the first one. The second one is, I guess it gets a little bit to what you're talking about. If they've done something uh, really bad that they that they don't seem to really be over. In that case, uh, we have turned away clients for that as well. What I hear you saying is that the first step has to be some kind of awareness, um, not just that they have a problem, but there's, that there's been some kind of quote-unquote wrongdoing or misstep. There's a big difference between a person and a company. So I think part of what you're doing is you're attributing more human, like single person, individual characteristics to a company right. than I think exists. I wouldn't say that they come to us and we kind of like look into their soul and try and determine if they're really remorseful. Right. If they seem like a company that is really doing something bad, shows no sign of um, wanting to change the direction or the, mm -hmm. even the, if it's a misperception, the misperception relating mm -hmm. to them. A lot of our company clients have evolved over time and they've gotten bigger and they've gotten more power and more money mm -hmm. uh, at their disposal resources that they can use. And they mm -hmm. sort of creep out bit by bit into a place of doing things that some people would look at if you did it when you were a little company, wouldn't be a big mm. deal. But if you do it when mm. you're a really, really big company, it's like all that's of a sudden that's all right. In fact, I used to be a lawyer, but in the, in the lawyer biz, um, mm -hmm. like if, and not that our clients are monopolies necessarily, but once you become designated a monopoly, a lot of mm -hmm. stuff that you used to be able to do when you were not designated a monopoly, which was perfectly fine then, is now right. all of a sudden illegal. So a company comes and says, we've misstepped or we're perceived to have misstepped. Help us out. Since we're focusing in this episode on the apology, let's assume for the sake of, of our conversation that the company needs to issue some kind of 
an apology, some kind of public acknowledgement of wrongdoing or misstep or remorse. In that situation, is there in your toolbox a kind of a cookie cutter form? Any kind of communication of an apology in this situation needs A, B, and C. Yes. In fact, there is an A, B, and C. Let me, before I get to the A, B, and C, or the one, two, and three, say that you don't always go to apology. And in fact, Mm -hmm. compared to, again, we were drawing this human company contrast, an apology from a company is a very different dynamic. Mm -hmm. So it's not just because you do something that's wrong, even if you feel like you don't want to do that thing anymore and you recognize you've done something wrong, sometimes Mm -hmm. an apology can make it worse. And we can talk about that. But to the point of you want to do the apology route, there are three pieces to it. And you'll, a lot of these have parallels to the human apology, but the first one is acknowledgement of wrongdoing. And that's a critical first step in some instances. But this step, I would say in some ways, while it's probably the most important in a human apology, Mm -hmm. in some cases, it's not essential in a company apology. Why? Why is it different? Why is it different? Um, Because a human can actually feel real remorse Um, Whereas when you get to a company, it's a little bit more complicated of a question as to whether a company can feel remorse. But what they really want from a company is that they've changed their behavior. And those are Hmm. steps two and three. So step two is you're going to fix whatever damage you've done. Again, compared to a human apology, a lot of times there is no damage. It's like you've said something stupid, you've done something stupid, but there's not like there's nothing you can really fix. It's not damage that can be repaired in any kind of that's right way. And fixing the damage at a company level means expending resources. So that's the second one. And then the mm-hmm. third one is explain what specific steps you're going to take to make sure it never happens again. Hmm. So steps number two and three are essentially one of them is past oriented. I, how do I kind of make amends and the other is future. If I were to translate it into kind of, you know, let's say human terms, one of them is, is acknowledging responsibility for what happened. And one of them is issuing or expressing resolve to change future behavior. That's right. But again, compared to a, a human's apology, when a person expresses those, they can just be words. It's a verbal act uh, for right. a company it's got to be a specific act like what are you what steps are you taking what are you, right. how are you changing and the same on the forward looking thing like normally you say like i will never do that again if you've done something bad to a right. loved one or whatever right. i'm really right. sorry and that depth of remorse you can kind of read on a person you can't mm-hmm. really get a read on a company Mm-hmm. Um, and so the steps are the way that you convey your sincerity, whereas for a person, you convey it through your you know, right. obviousness of your remorse. And if we circle back to the, the first step, if you're going to do an actual verbal apology, the goal of that part of that first step, and I said it's not always essential, but the goal of it is kind of a clear the runway move. And so it it tends to be a kind of a quick thing. You almost like want to do it and then move on because they're really interested in steps two and three. If I ask you to go from the professional to the personal, Scott Siff, have there been moments when you've said to yourself, huh, in the same way that let's say I counsel clients of mine to go from the apology to kind of very concrete steps. Have there been ways or moments where you've said, hmm, I think that that's necessary in in areas of personal life or that would be quote unquote effective in a way that just saying I'm sorry wouldn't be? I I know we want kind of lessons for our own life maybe out of this work, but they really do run a little bit on parallel tracks. They've kind of Mm -hmm. got their own rules. Mm -hmm. Um, Companies face a lot of hurdles that people don't face with apologies? The personal and the corporate run parallel tracks, as you said, but isn't what they have in common that the person who's been damaged wants to be convinced of the person's or the company's sincerity? Yeah, I think that's right. There's definitely the need for sincerity. I think the idea of sincerity has a little bit different of a meaning in the two contexts for the person, you know, a human apology, it's, 
like you really get it. You're trying to be a good person with regard to the person you're apologizing to. The sincerity on the corporate side is you're changing specifically the ways that you're doing business. Other big problem is that companies have a lot of lawyers, which the ordinary person who's apologizing tends not to have unless they're really in trouble. Um, And lawyers have a way of not, they really don't like apologies because it makes their job harder in their view, which is if I'm going to have to litigate some of these issues and you're now on record saying we screwed up. And so they will want to lawyer up your apology. Then I would say the third really big one here is that humans have actual a whole basket of reasons, emotions, motives, companies are set up, and this is part of how they're not human. They only are supposed to have really one motive. And I know there's been a lot of talk about how they have other motives, but they're basically supposed to make money. If you come out and say, we're really sorry for this, any kind of thing that sounds emotion-ish coming from a company is like, well, your goal is to make money here. Like, like what, what are you talking about? You're not really sorry. You're only saying you're sorry because you think it's going to hurt your or help your bottom line by saying that. Have there been any moments or situations in which uh, you've seen people on the inside undergo some kind of personal process where you've kind of been convinced, huh, in the name of dealing with a situation which requires damage control, this person has uh, done some kind of accounting, at least as far as I can see? Yeah, 100%. A lot of times, and it goes to our earlier part of the conversation, that sometimes these executives have grown up with a company. And so stuff that they did when the company was little was like proactive and and aggressive. Like aggressive when you're a little company is good. Aggressive when you're a big company is bad. It has to sink in. Like we can't do business the way we did five years ago or 10 years ago because when when we move a little it has huge impacts on other businesses and on consumers. And so that part of understanding how you have screwed up or how your behavior is wrong is sometimes not just a matter of being sorry. There's the prior part to that of understanding why something that used to be okay is no longer okay. Hmm. And sometimes it takes a while for their mind evolution to catch up to events in the world. And you can see this with some of the big companies that are out there who were beloved five years ago and now are constantly under attack. It takes a while as a regular person inside the leadership of one of these companies to get it. Um, Hmm. You know, it's a very hard personal process for a lot of them. Has there ever been a time that after you did your job offering some sage advice and and guiding a company or a client through a very, very complicated stormy process. Have you ever had a moment of regret uh, where you thought, hmm, I did my job well professionally speaking, but at some level, I'm kind of sorry that I did? I would say no, and here's why. One of the things that companies have in their apology process that people don't, and which is something that we do is Uh, market research. So companies don't actually usually just get up and apologize. Like you test the nuance and, and there's usually a a tug of war between the comms strategists like us and the lawyers. And we'll like, we have to pull the lawyers along and say like, look, if we say it your way, look at the numbers, this is going to be bad. And so that look at the numbers thing is we are war gaming out basically what's Mm going to really work. There's an expression usually of remorse on the inside But the idea is, can we convey that effectively? And so that's what we help with. Usually, though, to the extent that a company leadership is hesitating to go in the right direction, our our numbers, our polling and whatever else we do, will say like, look, if you don't do this, it's going to be bad for the company. And so even for some of our clients who have been a little more reluctant to do the right thing, I think part of our job and part of what's a good uh, outcome of the process is to show them why, no, this is going to be good for the company. It's going to be good for you. And we can pull them along uh, to do the right thing. So I, I haven't had that happen. It sounds like you're blessed with a belief that the right thing will usually pay off. 
And so, and so your job in that sense is to keep people moored to whatever the right thing is. Yeah. And I, and there's two aspects of why I have that faith. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the first one is uh, the internet has amped up the level of transparency that companies are exposed to whether mm -hmm. they want it or not. Mm -hmm. The second thing is that, and maybe this is a little bit more of my optimism about humankind is like, these people are just people, you know, they went to school and they have families and they're not like mobsters or they're just people trying to do a job. And a lot of times what's happened is the progress of the companies of evolution or events have changed in the world have kind of left them a little out of sync of where they mm -hmm. ought to be. Mm -hmm. But it's not like they're intent on like, I'm going to just do what I have to do to make money. It's like, no, mm -hmm. I, I need to get caught back up to put myself back in sync with the world. And then they'll do the right thing. I mean, they're not, mm -hmm. my experiences, they're not usually, I haven't run into any like really bad people. Scott Siff, thank you very, very much for being with us on Podrast. It was great to, great to have the conversation. Thank you. I apologize. Really. I apologize because I planned this episode and thought I knew what it was about, what we would be trying to say based on the This American Life episode. We would analyze what makes an apology work. But then my guests came along, and I realized that as hard as it is to craft and deliver a heartfelt apology, that's not even enough. So here's what I learned. I learned that the apology is not something to master so that I can overcome the wrongdoing. It's the entry point into the tikkun, that mending work that I'm being called to do right now. It's my special work in the world, and my job is to enter its expanse and not dismiss it quickly. It's my work in the world, but it's not about me. I said earlier that I was offering a kind of corrective by not even hearing Dan Harmon's voice, the silencing of the male, as it were. But the truth is that all along, even in the seven-and-a-half-minute version, Harmon's apologies always felt to me about him. Now I know, who am I to say that? After all, Megan Gantz, she was the person injured and she called it a master class. But I kept sensing a snag as I listened to his apology and the Sloanimer helped me understand why. At no point did Harmon seem to understand the generosity of the Sloanimer's invitation to enter into that place where I'm being called to do some fixing, not for my own sake, but for the sake of the world. In Harmon's case, that meant me too, and it meant that it wasn't about him which he kept saying, but I was never fully convinced. And it meant that he had to cede the power to Megan Gantz, whom he had abused with the power he wielded. And it meant recognizing that his murky memories were Gantz's painfully vivid continued nightmares. As Rabbi Felicia Soul said, six years went by and they weren't even each other's significant others, and yet the sustained influence of their encounter was significant indeed, painfully so. That, of course, is a terrifying thought, that our interactions with even our insignificant others can have such sustained impact and that we have to do a serious accounting of our lives to make sure that we're not in the pews of the synagogue on Yom Kippur, as Rabbi Joel Levy warned, thinking to ourselves, yeah, my life is basically all good. But there's something else that haunts me. I fear that Scott Siff overestimated the gap between the corporate and the personal. Everyone whom we've damaged wants to know that we're sincerely sorry and that we're sincerely committed to being different. Because we can't look into the eyes of the corporation, Scott said, we demand action. But we can gaze into the eyes of the person who's hurt us and gauge their sincerity. Or can we? Megan Gantz said that Harmon's early apologies kept moving the line. And I'm increasingly convinced that we can nail the apology but still miss the mark. We may not be hearing the work we're being called to do. Padrash is a project of Kolot. I'm Leon Wienerdow, creator and host. My sincere thanks go to this episode's guests, Rabbi Felicia Soul and Scott Siff, to our producer, Noam Zuckerman, to David Goodman, our sound editor, to Michael Goelsamil for the original music, to digital media intern Hannah Taylor, and of course to my chavruta, Rabbi Joel Levy, for the learning, the wisdom, 
and the willingness to share bravely and openly that he's on his sixth marriage. Please visit our website, www.podrash.org, where you'll find links to the original episodes of This American Life and Harmontown, and to Joel's and my extended Chavruta, along with the texts that we referenced. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends, tweet, like our page on Facebook, and please give us a five-star rating. It really helps. We'll be back next week with episode four, Buzzing in My Head. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us.